We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Today's guest is a true environmental hero. In 1978, Lois Gibbs was a young mother with a child in a school. The name of her neighborhood, Love Canal, and that of Lois Gibbs herself gained international attention in the late 1970s and early 1980s as their fight for environmental justice gained incredible momentum. Niagara Falls, New York, August 1978. For the first time, a national emergency is declared because of a chemical waste disaster. The source of the chemicals in the Love Canal is this huge complex operated by the Hooker Chemical Company. During a 10-year period ending in 1952, Hooker emptied more than 20,000 tons of chemical refuse into the old canal, including some of the most deadly substances known to man. I think it's helpful to sort of start at the beginning and to go back to where your story began of involvement in all of these issues to Love Canal in 1978. Would you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the environmental movement to begin with? Yeah, I'm actually an accidental environmentalist is what I call myself. I moved into the community in Niagara Falls. It was called the LaSalle section. And with my husband and my two small children I had there, and my kids started getting sick. You know, I really believed at that point, like, I just achieved the American dream at 25 years of age, right? I had this house and a picket fence, and I had my two kids, and my husband was gainfully employed in the chemical industry. That's what Niagara Falls was really about. And then Michael started getting sick, one thing after the other, a liver problem, an immune system problem. Um, He had grand mal seizures. He had a urinary problem. And I'm thinking, like, what is going on here? And the pediatrician had no answers. And one day I picked up our local Gannett newspaper and I read about the Love Canal dump site, which had 20,000 tons of chemicals in it, in the center of my neighborhood, under the elementary school that Michael was attending kindergarten in. And I looked at this thing and I was like, holy moly, this is the answer. This is why Michael's so sick. Well, I waited for a little while to see, now that it's exposed, who's going to do something? And I seriously waited for somebody to knock on my door and tell me what to do. I mean, I was really looking for some guidance personally. No one ever came to my door. And so I decided I had to do something on my own, and and I went to the school board and said, transfer my child out of the school. It's built on top of a toxic dump site. He's very sick, and he's special, so please move him. And the school board, Dr. Long, was in charge at the time. He said, we can't do that, Mrs. Gibbs. If we move Michael Gibbs, then we have to move all 407 children who attend that school. And we are not going to do that because of one irate, hysterical mother with a sickly child. He used that term. He did use that term. And then he went on to say, which was so insulting, if your child's so sick, why are you running around City Hall and coming here and not home taking care of your child? That was so degrading. I'm like, I am taking care of my child and trying to get him out of the school. I'm just curious, at that time, a lot of people still didn't make the connection between chemicals in the environment and health. In fact, we're still battling that today. So what immediately made you think, aha, it's the chemicals under the school? 
it was really just common sense. They were there. They were also on the surface of the school, like where the playground was. And the school board used to go and dump dirt over the top of them. And when the barrels would rust through and the top would collapse, what would happen is you would get a black pool of chemicals that literally was the same size as the top of a 55-gallon barrel. And the children used to go in there put sticks in it and say, we're like the Beverly Hillbillies. We found oil. We can go live in a mansion, you know, because it was, yeah. So we knew it was there. It's extraordinary. We forget today how there were no rules then uh, and what an era with no rules actually looks like. So you are at this point in your story being insulted and demeaned as a woman, as a mom. There's no cavalry coming. And then you at some point decide to be the savior. How did that switch flip for you? I sort of got tired of waiting. So what I decided to do was take a petition door to door to close the elementary school. They would drag me down to their basement and show me the chemical rainbows in their basement around their sump pumps. And I have to say, I was shocked to learn things like 12-year-olds who have hysterectomies due to cancer, 21 years old who die and they claim it was crib death. How could it possibly be crib death? He's 21 years old. Five-year-old Mark Dunmire lives five blocks from the canal. He was born with a heart murmur, a urinary tract obstruction, and a diseased pancreas. He can't play in his basement anymore. It's contaminated. What's in there? Chemicals. Those are probably what got me sick. And I did have three operations. Our little Julie was stillborn. Please don't allow this to happen to anyone else before you get them out. I want out of here. I don't want to die here. I want to move into my new house. I want to start living again. I want to forget about the baby I lost. I mean, people were very open, very willing to talk, which, again, was very surprising because most of them were employed in the very industry that has created the problem. And how was your husband feeling about your activism at that point? My poor husband, <laughs> he, he was very supportive. And, and I say poor because what happened to him is when he went to a bar after work, everybody would point to him as his wife who was trying to get the industry to leave the city of Niagara Falls. And socially, he, he was isolated entirely. You know, so he got thrown off his bowling team, made fun of, everybody kept picking fights with him, egging him on, your wife's in Washington, D.C., who she's sleeping with. I mean, that kind of derogatory sort of statement, mostly from people who fear they were going to lose their job. And you go from that fight and find the strength to persevere through it and become known a short while later as the mother of the Superfund legislation which actually instituted rules against the sort of disregard to these sort of sites that you had experienced. How did you go from what you just described to having that accomplishment? It was a huge accomplishment. Superfund was created because of Love Canal. And a a Superfund site is actually a site that poses a high risk to human health and the environment. The biggest moment of... Yes, was when I was standing next to Jimmy Carter, and he had signed the bill that appropriated the money to move all residents who wished to leave, which was 800 residents. 
Today, the federal government and the state of New York are setting in motion an action plan to temporarily relocate over 700 families in Love Canal area of Niagara Falls. We believe that this action is necessary to protect the health and to protect the welfare of these residents from exposure to toxic waste deposited in the area by Hooker Chemical Company. The whole question of the disposal of hazardous waste, especially toxic chemicals, is going to be one of the great environmental challenges of the 1980s. There must never be another Love Canal. Thank you very much. Just standing on stage with the president saying, see, we are right. It showed democracy at its best, that a community of people, working class people, making ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 a year, standing up together to say, you've got to fix this problem and you've got to figure out a way to deal with other situations like this. Because by the end of Love Canal, which was really only two years later, there were hundreds of people, thousands of people calling and saying, we have a Love Canal. What are we going to do about it? Where do we find signs? Scientists. How are we going to pay for it? So Superfund was created not just for rules, but to deal with the amount of money it was going to cost across the country to relieve the suffering of local families and to clean up the environment in a way that really was a permanent cleanup and wouldn't continue to destroy our, our air, our water, and our soils. But it was brought about by people. You know, and I think in, in this day and age, remembering that a small group of people can make significant change is really the legacy of those two years of fighting at Love Canal. I absolutely love that notion of democracy at its best. And what's interesting about the story you tell is that you and your husband experienced ostracism at the hands of people who were concerned about the questions you were asking because they worried that it might hurt their jobs. And we actually hear this played out even today, environmental action and protecting human health somehow coming at the cost of jobs. Was there anything, any message that was particularly effective in getting people to see their self-interest in this and not just to view it through the lens of employment or industry? I think it was the health message, and that still resonates today, actually, nationwide. People are really worried about their job, but what they really care even more about is the health of their children and the health of their spouses or partners. That really motivates people to say, you know, I can find another job as long as I have my children and they're healthy and they can grow up and prosper. You know, when they said 56% of our children were born with birth defects, Every single woman in our community, without exception, stood up and said, whoa, there's the line in the sand. And, and, and women are the leaders primarily, I think. They're really the, the drivers behind cleaning up our environment and protecting our natural environment, but also protecting human health around so many of these sites. So, Lois, you discovered in the transformation that happened as a result of your experience in Love Canal a life's work around trying to inspire democracy at its best again and again and again on behalf of environmental issues. You formed a group called the Center for Health, Environment, and Justice, and you've helped 10,000 grassroots organizations, I think, at this point to do what, in some small or large way, what you did. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the center does? 
It's very exciting work, and we get calls all the time from people who have some kind of environmental chemical problem. It could be a fracking, it could be contaminated water like we see in Flint or saw in Flint. No, actually, we still see it in Flint. They think there's a problem, sort of like I, I thought there was a problem, right? So we actually help people walk from the stage of investigation. How do you find out what was there or what's coming out of the stack or you know whatever the science stuff is in the permit? And then how do I figure out whether it's dangerous or not? Then we tell them that if they organize, they're more likely to win. I truly believe in America democracy. I've seen it every single day. And so we help people to figure out how to organize, how to get their neighbors involved, how to talk to their neighbors, how to hold community meetings. And we've had great success. We have won more fights than we have lost. And it's where communities get organized and when they stand together and speak out. It's so interesting to hear you say we win more than we lose because I think the feeling of much of the environmental movement today is that with the administration that we have in Washington right now, there's been a lot of reversals and going back to an era of stripping away regulation and dismissing environmental and public health concerns as contrary to the interests of industry. And then there have been high profile failures like you know, the failure of the effort at Standing Rock to successfully block the pipeline installation there. And yet you still think citizen action is winning. That's hope, I wanna hear it. <laughs> Can you say a little bit more about why you think that's happening? Mostly because we're not working at the national level. I mean, we saw President Obama sign the paper for Standing Rock so that will not go through. And then President Trump comes in and erases it. When you have national policy, you have less control over where it ends up, whether you ever really have a win, for example. But if you're working at the local and state level, you can win. So let me give you a really good example. In North Carolina, they used to have a ban on hydrofracking, fracking. And some legislator decided that that wasn't a good idea. They took the ban off. So the group said, we're not going to be able to pass a new ban because the legislators at the state level clearly are on the other side. So what are we going to do? So they looked at the communities and they said, here are seven counties. In these seven counties are the most profitable for fracking. That's where the most is going to happen because of the way their formations are. So we are going to ban fracking in those seven counties. And when we do that, it will not be cost-effective for the frackers to come to North Carolina. And so they did that. There has not been fracking in North Carolina in four years. That's a huge win. It's harder to undo that. You can't be like Trump and just erase a signature. But what's more important is that people saw they won by working locally, that they actually have power, right? So the strategies are really state-based or regional-based, and the wins don't really make it to New York Times or the Washington Post, but the wins are incredibly significant. Let's stay with fracking for a moment because it's such an interesting subject for Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has New York to the north, and there's been a ban instituted in New York out of a concern for what the public health impacts might be, as well as environmental impacts. And yet Pennsylvania has had pretty much a no-holds-barred approach to fracking. What do they know that we don't? Well, I think Pennsylvania was the first state that they really came in the boom and bust era and made these promises before people really could organize around it, before there was real understanding of what the problem is. And then it got so far advanced, it was hard to take away. 
So when I was meeting uh, with a group up in Erie, Pennsylvania, and they wanted to organize around fracking, but their, their community is fractured. Some people have already got leases. Some people have already gotten money. Some people, you know, have poisoned water already. It's really hard to bring a community together when the community itself is not together on what they want. I actually see Pennsylvania as a sacrifice state that really demonstrated to the world all the things that are wrong with fracking. And I just think we hear from the citizens in Pennsylvania and the horrible, heartbreaking stories of people in their land and their water. I can often hold a standard kitchen match to my water and sometimes it will light quite spectacularly. Just like that. There was just like this red, nasty water just coming, just oozing out the side of the mountain. It looked like the mountain was bleeding. The vast majority of people here think it's wonderful. They think there'll be jobs, they think they'll be able to keep their families here, they'll be able to pay for education. That all is good on paper, but when things happen that ruin the value of your property, ruin the health of your family, that all goes out the window. My heart goes out to people in Pennsylvania and Colorado in places that really were the sacrifice zones for the rest of us to learn and stop the madness. What happens when science gets weaponized in these debates? So one of the things that we've seen in Pennsylvania is that the more independent studies that come out suggesting that there are real um, health harms associated with fracking, for example, the more we see those studies, the more we hear from industry science that they say disputes that. Did you experience that in Love Canal, and do you advise the groups that you work with how to deal with this attempt to counter science with sponsored science that tells a different story? It's always my favorite thing. How come the study done by Shell or Exxon is looked at as the most credible study ever produced, but a study done by Pew Charitable Trust looking at health effects is somehow biased because they're advocates, right? But it is true everywhere across the country on fracking and everything else is that they have an army of scientists. They have think tanks that do nothing but produce science to counter the real world situation. And what I suggest to people is that you use the science that you have to educate people, to organize them, to fight back. The science itself is not going to change anything. For every scientist we have, they have 50. We'll never win the science war because we don't have enough money. And I think that's where people get lost. They think that if we prove, and we did that, if we prove we have 56% birth defect rate, surely they're going to fix this problem. Their scientists, in this case the Health Department of New York State, came back and said our 56% birth defect rate was not related to Love Canal. It was related to a random clustering of genetically defected people. Genetically defected people. So it could be so. <sighs> I'm not a statistician. But what that number did is it motivated people, not just in our community, but across the state and across the country to say, whoa. You know, if this is what toxics do to women of childbearing age, let's take a second look. Let's see what's in our backyard. Let's see if we can reduce it. And so it had a positive impact in that way, but we'll never win the science war. President Trump's budget would slash funding for the Superfund program by nearly one-third. 
In testimony before a U.S. House subcommittee, Pruitt was asked how the agency could clean up sites faster with less money. It's more about decision-making, leadership, and management than about money presently. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt signed a proposed rule to begin withdrawing from the so-called Clean Power Plan. It's a horrible, horrible rule. Has sort of a nice name, but everything else is bad. With today's executive order, I'm directing the EPA to take action, paving the way for the elimination of this very destructive and horrible rule. Then last month, half of the scientists who used to provide scientific guidance on air and water quality were fired from the agency. Trump's pick to lead the Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Chemical Safety is named Michael Dorson, a longtime industry-funded researcher who spent decades working on behalf of corporations trying to stave off tougher chemical regulations. New expose in the New York Times tells the story of how a top Trump administration appointee insisted upon rewriting a rule to make it harder to track the health consequences of a cancer-causing chemical and therefore regulate it. Can't talk about this without looking at what's happening in Washington as well. And you're located in Washington. You see that up close. Given the activism that you work on, how concerned are you about what's happening in Washington with environmental policy right now? I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned. It's really clear from this administration that they want to unravel all of the regulations they possibly can in the short time that they they have. This administration is terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I often talk to a lot of the career EPA employees who say they have nothing to do. They sit and they play games on their computer or read something or, you know, get more education. And, you know, they're not called on to say, what do you think about this? They've been working on these sites for 10, 20 years. No one's being talked to. How do you react emotionally to that since it's a battle you fought 40 years ago? I know. It it is very frustrating. It it makes me very angry. I mean, there was no reason why we have this. We one time had a Superfund polluter pay fee, which put money into Superfund, and it expired or sunset in 1995. At that time, there was $4 billion. So Superfund was actually cleaning up a lot of sites, moving very, very quickly. Then once that money expired, there's no money in Superfund. You and I are paying for Superfund, around $1.2 billion, $1.3 billion out of our general federal taxes today. That's the frustrating part. There's no money. There's a mechanism for money, but there's no money. Without any money... They can't clean it up. And it's the corporate polluters who are fighting against renewing the polluter pays fee, which is nickels and dimes. But it's how it gets paid. You know, one of the observations that I've heard made in the past few years is that the environment always appears on the list of, of concerns that Americans have about the future. And obviously, environmental health even higher on the list. But they don't vote on it. Do you see a shift happening with people in local communities as more of a bread and butter or health issue for themselves than they have in the past? I think they see it more as a health issue, but I don't see that translating into votes, Mm. which I find extraordinarily frustrating, right? I I mean, I can't figure it out, but it's really true. They, They admit it's a health issue. They admit it's an environmental issue. But on the other hand, then they vote against their own interests. For example, when I was in Flint, I was talking to Flint, before the Republican primary, and I, and I asked people what they were going to do, and they said, we're voting for Trump. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? What do you mean you're voting for Trump? We're voting for Trump. Why are you voting for Trump? 
because we need somebody to upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they had any idea how upset the apple cart would be, right? But, but you can certainly understand the impulse, right? I mean, the traditional system so utterly failed them mm-hmm. that you can understand why they might think that way. And, and that's true in Mississippi, and that's true in Louisiana, it's true here in Pennsylvania. You know, there's a big fight in Pennsylvania, Keystone Landfill, that's taking in all out-of-state waste, almost all out-of-state waste. They want to elevate this landfill 50 feet into the air because they can't go left to right. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a, it's a, it's a vertical permit. It's, what are you thinking? Why would you do this? In their case, these folks organized around the mayor fight. I I look at this community as like, it's a wonderful life with Mr. Potter, who owned everything in the community. It's an old Christmas show. And they ran somebody against the equivalent to Mr. Potter, the guy who owned the bank, who wouldn't give loans, who owned most small businesses. And they ran their own person and won by 12 votes. Wow. In Lancaster. I mean, that that was pretty remarkable. So, you know, these things do happen, but for the most part, people don't think voting for somebody is going to change the outcome of their situation. They really don't. And I don't, I just don't get that disconnect. But the place where you do see hope and you do see opportunity is around citizen action on specific issues. Yeah. And situations like the landfill. Or the land mountain. What would you call that? A trash mountain? Yeah, Mount Trashmore. I don't know. (laughs) No, that's true. And, and, And one of the things that I'm really working on, so we just recently merged with another organization that really teaches people how to run for office and what that might look like. And so we're going to try to do a little cross-pollinating with our group and see if we can get folks really interested in that and running for school board or running for town council or something like that to really get them to understand that they have power, but you know they have to take seats of power as well. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping that that will, that will work over the long haul. I love that notion between having power and also taking seats of power. So this for you really does come back to creating a better democracy, doesn't it? Yes. More engaged citizens. I think that the biggest message I've learned and understanding over the last 40 years, this is the 40th anniversary of the event at Love Canal, is that really people need to stand up and speak out and organize themselves, that our country's at stake. Our very environment is planet is at stake. And if we don't all stand up, I mean, I did it. I'm a high school graduate, right? If we don't stand up and speak out, you know, our future looks really bleak. And we can do this. I mean, it's just so easy. It's scary, but it's so easy once you get into it. It's clear that the spark Lois Gibbs felt when she first organized her Love Canal community to stand up for their environmental rights burns just as brightly today. And it's more than evident from our current headlines that her energy and belief in the power of the unified voice of the community is absolutely of this hour. As Lois herself has said, average people and the average community can change the world. You can do it just based on common sense, determination, persistence, and patience. I have to say that I sometimes think people like Lois Gibbs underestimate the extent to which they are truly extraordinary. But her faith that we can follow in her footsteps is profound and worth listening to. We're grateful that she persisted in her fight 
and that she continues to inspire others, the rest of us, to fully realize the power of our own voices.